Well, uh, Happy New Year. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's, uh, uh, we, we don't live in a fear and power culture, but if we did live in a fear and power culture, like, for example, Africa is a fear and power culture, and oftentimes in, uh, in fear and power cultures, there is a lot of fear towards the end of the year and beginning of the year uh, because there is, there is a lot of superstition that death happens towards the end of years and life happens at the beginning of a new year. And so as, as prevalent as that, as that is in fear and power cultures, oddly enough, there's a, isn't there some weird sense in which we kind of buy into that? You know, we don't make resolutions for change in our lives in October, right? We say things like, you know, I'll eat whatever I want from Thanksgiving to the end of the, you know, end of the year, and then I'll start, you know, my diet in January. We have this idea of, of, you know, a new year is a time for new things, and I am guilty of thinking that way as well. And so um, I want to offer a word that is for this year. That's, I oftentimes do this when I, you know, preach the first Sunday of the year. I think, Lord, what are you saying, you know, for the year? And, and so I feel like I have a word, but it's a strange word to, to open a year with, um, for a lot of reasons, and first off is it's probably a message that if I were more pragmatic, I would put this away and hold on to it until Easter Sunday and preach it on Easter Sunday, but what I've learned with the word of the Lord in your life is it's kind of like manna, that it doesn't keep well, that you, when he, you know, gives you a word, you, you speak it, you use it, and uh, unless he tells you to hold on to it, you don't, you open your mouth, you don't close your mouth, and so uh, I'm going to go ahead and go with it. Today, because I think it is pertinent. It's not, uh, you know, I've been I've been thinking a lot about uh, uh, 2020, and and I know J- Brian and I've joked a lot about the whole idea of a, you know, 2020 vision, and that you know every church and every ministry ought to have a 2020 vision because it's such a fun play on words. Uh, and uh, but I think every church and every ministry and every believer should have you know vision for their lives on a on a ongoing basis, you know, uh, without vision, we, we, are, we are dying without it, right? That's what the word says. And so um, I'm going to get into something that, again, is kind of outside of the, the norm. It is what I would call the most futile, the most pointless instruction or word that's offered in Scripture. Um, but it is still powerful if we're not careful. And so I'm going to uh, get into it in just a second. Um, I'll tell you some background story, then I'll pray, and then we'll get into it. Uh, so here's what happens. Uh, you guys know the story, but pretend you don't. Jesus has been crucified, and uh, finally, the religious elite feel like they've gotten him off of their hands. You know, he has been a nuisance to the status quo, and if you're in authority uh, particularly in the in, in first century biblical times, if you're an authority, meaning you are one of the religious elite, uh, you are not anxious or apt to want to give that up. And so uh, Jesus has been a absolute constant. You might argue that he's been a, a thorn in the side of the religious elite from the age of 12 uh, when he begins to confound the teachers of the law with his wisdom and grow in that wisdom to the point of his public ministry where he, he just tears down the, 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 the walls of normal religious life. 
in, in, uh, in first century Israel. And so he's now been dealt with finally through crucifixion, through the most heinous of Roman execution devices, publicly humiliated and, 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 and killed and put to the grave so that he would finally be off of their hands. And the, after he's crucified, um, the chief priests and the Pharisees go to Pontius Pilate, who you know is the governor of uh, over the over the the whole uh, uh, over Israel for on behalf of Rome. This is now a Roman colony, and he is the the authority that they have to appeal to. And so you have essentially all of the authority structure that exists within the land now uh, congregating around uh, Pontius Pilate, and and they go to Pilate as the authority and say, look. Um, here's their reasoning. We're concerned that these guys that follow him may come and steal his body because there's a lot of legendary stuff, you know, a lot of kind of like mythical stuff about this man. And uh, they may come and steal his body and then, and then claim that he's been raised from the dead. Um, and that, if they do that, then that deception will be worse than all of the deception that existed when he walked around on earth, you know, making these these claims of who he was. And so um, that's kind of the background for, for what's going on in what I believe to be the most futile, or if you live in the South, futile word that exists in all of Scripture. And it's, it's in Matthew chapter 27 in verse 65 and 66 where Pilate responds, take a guard and go and make the tomb secure. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. I believe this is the most pointless instruction ever given in Scripture because it flies in the face of the sovereign, perfect will of God. And so, you know, go and make the tomb as secure as you know how is a ridiculous instruction, if only they knew. And verse 66 says, So they went and made the tomb secure, by setting a seal, putting a seal on the stone, that seal is almost undoubtedly a Roman seal. So probably, you know, a stone is rolled in front of the opening and it's roped and then a seal is emblazoned on that rope that would mark this as being sealed by Rome. And the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the seal of Rome is here that says, if you mess with this, you mess with the authority of Rome. And not only is a seal put there, but a guard is posted. And the guard that is posted, you know, by, by guard, it's probably a century of, of, of Roman soldiers. Almost certainly by the way this is phrased and the words that are used by Pilate, this isn't a Jewish guard, even though there could have been Jewish guard. This is a Roman guard, which means probably 15 men are posted to keep watch over this tomb to make sure that it's secure. And if you know, if you understand the the context of what that guard would be responsible for, for 15 Roman guards to be responsible. Um, Somebody's awake keeping watch the whole time, and the way that it would work is if somebody fails, if one of those guards fails and something happens, uh, not only is that guard punished by death, but all of them are punished by death, collectively. And so... uh, some of the theories that, it, that might exist about things that could have happened are, are, are you know, 
a bit far-fetched. So there's this, there's this guard that's there, there's this stone that's there, there's this seal, and what they have done is they've done exactly what Pilate has instructed, to go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. Now, I want to juxtapose that, and I'm going to pray in just a second, get into this, with what happens just a few verses later in chapter 28 of the book of Matthew, when we get into what we know to be uh, the resurrection. We know this is the most futile word. There's no sense of suspense or surprise in the story to you, because you all know the story. Most of, you, most of you have embedded your whole lives in this story. I will tell you that my entire life is embedded in the truthfulness, the veracity of this story. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, I have nothing to say. I have no purpose for compensation. I am only in this because I believe with all of my being that Jesus is alive. If you don't believe that, if you can believe a whole lot of other things, if you don't believe that, you are not what we would call a disciple or a follower of Jesus. You could have followed him prior to his death had you existed at that time and chosen not to after his resurrection. And maybe you could have laid some claim to say, hey, at one time I followed him. But if you do not have your faith embedded in the, 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 the truth of the resurrection, then you are not a believer. And so everything that I have and everything I believe has to come through the lens of the truthfulness of this account. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in the longest chapter that he writes, that if the resurrection isn't real, then all of our preaching is futile. So the point is, either Pilate's instruction is futile, or my preaching is futile. You have to make a decision on this. And and this is why I think it's such an imperative word uh, for our day. And so this is what, I'm not sure if you guys have it, but in, uh, I'm just going to look at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 28. This is what it, uh, the angels say to women who show up. Who are the women that show up? Anybody know? Mary and the other Mary. How would you like to be known as the other Mary? I mean, in a way, it sounds so dismissive right? You're not even important enough to be identified by something else. You're just, it's like Jeff and the other Jeff or something like that. I mean, this is so, but how would you like to be identified as one of the two people to whom, you know, the resurrection is, is, is first revealed? And so the, the angel says to them, it, it, you know, you have to juxtapose this against the, the, the fear and the doubt that exists in Pilate's headquarters, go and make the tomb as secure as you can, with this angel who says to these two women, come and see. Come and see the place where he lay because he's risen. He's not here. And then come and see. And after you come and see, go and tell. This, this I believe, is the, is, the, is the admonition that still exists in 2020 in the first Sunday of January for us today. This is the invitation of the Lord. Come and see and go and tell. And so I want to pray and, and, and get into this. And so, Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would open up, that you would expand on this word for us, that you would give us, uh, give us a sense of, of, of almost like the, 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 the weighing of, of things on scales. Lord, that there would be a, a, a divine uh, estimation. One or the other has to be true, Lord. And we, 
I believe with all my heart the most futile words ever spoken were to go and make your tomb secure. And so we ask, Lord, that you would speak this word into our hearts, that you would, you would find a place of uh, receptivity, of fertility, that there would be soil that's been, that's been fertilized and prepared and ready for a seed, a divine seed to be planted in that place, that we would take this first opportunity as we worship together in this new year and that we would have seed implanted within our hearts that would go deep and that would take root and that would grow and bear fruit. Lord, as I always pray, if you're going to move and meddle in hearts, start with mine. Come, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. So, um, the last recorded words of Pontius Pilate in the Bible are the most haunting. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. I guess the thing that hits me even right away is, um, I, how do you make a tomb secure? Uh, you know, maybe, the, maybe what we see here, you know, a seal, a rope, a guard, or whatever. Or, or maybe a better thing to ask is, why would you have to? You know, unless... Unless our carefully crafted and controlled take on the world uh, is that we see a world without God and without divine presence. We just sang about we love your presence, we love your power, uh, way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. That's who you are. You're here. You're moving. You're, you're doing something here. If we, if we don't believe that, um, then if we believe that God is just some sort of merely convenient invention of our minds uh, and this whole idea of Jesus being raised from the dead is just some sort of invention, uh, then we would probably want to make sure that there's no possibility of this, uh, this tomb ever being empty. And, and frankly, uh, I, I'm not going to do an uh, ex- expositional sermon where I get into all the evidence. I preached that message before. It's one of my favorite Easter messages to preach is to combine together all the little pieces of evidence that, that bring the weight of the resurrection. Um, I want you just to operate with me, even if you're the one who here this morning who has the most doubt. I want you to operate with me uh, under, the, under the, the, the presumption with me that the resurrection is real. And to look at what the resurrection means for us in light of the futility of making, a, making the tomb secure. In other words, if it's God's sovereign plan to raise Jesus from the dead, What could have been done to secure the tomb? Jesus is an interesting guy when it comes to, to death. Uh, it's, it's, uh, his history has already been, I mean, I wonder how much of this Pontius Pilate and, and the religious elite knew. But if you go back and look at Jesus' encounter with death, I've said this often as a preacher, he wrecked every funeral that he attended. I mean, we don't know. I mean, clearly people were dying every day in Israel during the, the, the life and the ministry of Jesus. We, it wasn't as though every single person, that, that, you know, nobody died during Jesus' ministry. But when we see in Scripture Jesus encountered death, we see something interesting happen. For example, Luke chapter 7, Jesus encounters a woman who's a widow in a town called Nain, and he's walking into the town just at the moment that a funeral procession's coming out of town, and right at the city gates, and the city gates are really prominent. It's a place where, you know, you, know, you take dead people outside the city, outside the camp, and Jesus is coming into the city. And so you have this procession of life, Jesus and his followers coming into Nain, and you have this procession of death coming out of Nain to go in to bury this boy, the only son of a widow. And Jesus encounters 
this funeral procession, and the Bible says when Jesus looked upon her, the widow, who's now no husband to provide for her, no son to provide for her, he realizes the fact that she's more dead than the kid. And he, when it look, he looks upon her, it says he had compassion, and he goes and does something. Now, I've always thought of this message in terms of the way I, I think about this. Yeah, I don't know how you enter into Scripture. When I do, I kind of get there, and I kind of put myself on the scene, and I think, like, what would it have looked like? What would it have been like? And weirdly, one of the things I thought about in this particular passage is, what would some other leader of some other world religion have done? I mean, what does Buddha say in the, in, the, in the midst of this? Like, you know, well, you know, he's, what goes around comes around, you know, round and round she goes, where she stops, nobody knows. Maybe, maybe the boy will come back as a, a leaf or a pencil or a, tar, a, you know, a, a, you know, a tiger or something and have an opportunity to do something else with, with his life. What would Muhammad have said in the light of this? Muhammad would have said something like, you know, um, you know, this is the will of Allah. So be it. Jesus enters into this scenario and looks at the woman with compassion and walks up to the boy, to the funeral pyre, the, the, the procession carrying. He walks up and he touches a dead body, which is unheard of, and he says, boy, get up and go back to your mama. And the boy gets up out of the coffin out of the, out of the, and jumps down onto the ground and goes back to his, his mother, and revival is sparked. This is the way Jesus encounters funerals. Next chapter, he's, he's, uh, he's called to go and visit a... Uh, the daughter of Jairus, who's sick, and he gets distracted. Not to, he gets held up on the way. There's a traffic jam. And the traffic jam is, is really over him. You know, he's the cause of the traffic jam. And, and a woman who's sick, you know, touches him, and, and, and this stalls him getting there. And she's healed. And then by the time he's done with this, he gets the word that it's too late, that the woman, that the, the Jairus' daughter has died. And... Uh, and Jesus says, well, no, no big deal, guys. She's just sleeping. And they laugh at him for this. And so Jesus goes and says to her, he says, girl, wake up. You know, get up. And she does. <laughs> Switch out of Luke's Gospels into John chapter 11. Jesus goes, uh, after four days of death, he goes to visit the tomb of Lazarus, who he loves deeply, and Jesus, who knows, how many of you believe Jesus knows what he is going to do when he gets there? How many of you believe he just makes it up as he's going? Well, just go and see what's going on at his tomb. Well, you know, what's, he knows what he's going to do, right? He's called. And the Bible makes this clear in, the, in what leads up to this story, that Jesus is called by Mary and Martha to come. He waits, allows Lazarus to get good and dead. I call it stinky dead. Four days in the tomb, dead. And then he shows up, and knowing what he's going to do, this is the King of kings and Lord of lords who's both fully God and fully man, allows the humanity of the moment to completely invade his soul. And even though he knows what he's about to do, he weeps. So he enters into the human condition. He weeps alongside of the siblings, and then he says, okay, now, people of Bethany, roll away that stone. Roll away the stone, and he says, Lazarus, come on out of there. 
Lazarus comes out, takes off the grave clothes, and he makes it. Now, it gets even weirder than this. Those are the three real accounts of Jesus just completely disrupting funerals. But it gets weirder than this. In the lead-up to this story, we find in, in Matthew 27 that in the aftermath of Jesus' crucifixion, and there's an earthquake, and the, the, the curtain of the temple, the veil of the temple tears from top to bottom, that it says that the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died in Jerusalem were raised to life. Uh, Do you remember that this is in the Bible? That the bodies of many holy people, many probably saints that had gone before him were raised to life. They come to life, they come out of their tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Do you know that the Bible says this? We don't know what happened to these people. <laughs> I, we know that Jesus is the only resurrected man, right? So if you hear about somebody else being resurrected from the dead, it's bad language. It's, it's semantics, but it's bad language. No one is resurrected at this point other than Jesus. There have been people who have been resuscitated, right? But I believe that all of these saints who, had, who were raised, uh, you know, in the aftermath died again, you know, like Lazarus did or, or Jairus' daughter uh, or the widow of Nain's son. And so, but the point being is, is that there seems to be within the power of Jesus, within, as he, as he, as he grows into maturity, as the son of God, that he has within him the power to make dead things alive. And so, I don't know how this hits the ear of Pontius Pilate or, uh, or the, 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 the Jewish elite, but it seems as though there's enough concern about the stories they've heard that they want to make sure that Jesus stays good and dead. No stone rolled away, no, no bodies being stolen, not even, even if he's alive inside of there, he's going to stay inside of there and be alive. The problem with this, the futility of this, is that Jesus is who he says he is. He is God with us. He is both nearby, involved in our daily lives and beyond us, reigning at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But Pilate sticks by his words and, and, and puts his own spin on the world and misses the grace and the truth of the resurrection. And the, the women, in comparison, instead receive an invitation from an angel to come and see, and their fear is filled with joy, and they run and they tell that the grave is empty, God's out and about on the loose and in your life and in all creation. And so I want to just kind of make three, I, I don't, these are the words that you hate to hear from a preacher. I don't think I'm going to preach very long. Uh, but I want to just make three points. I want to take this word about making the tomb secure, and I want to apply it in a more of a symbolic way. Because I believe that this is, this is the way the world continues to work. Uh, I, I believe that the Making the, the, the voice that says make the tomb secure is a, is a word that's spoken over your life individually and over the life of the church uh, or even over the, 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 the church worldwide. That, that there is this idea of, 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 of making us, making the tomb secure that we would not be able to live into the destiny of who God's called us to be. And I believe there are three essential sources or voices that speak that. It's not the voice of Pilate anymore. It's the spirit of the age, you know, just make the, make the tomb secure. I'll unpack that in just a second. I believe it's the devil. This is the word of the devil, you know, to, to essentially to convince us that there is no power of resurrection, uh, that, that everything that we can't ever get in life, we have to get here and now, kind of combines that with the spirit of the age. And then I think there is the voice of self. 
the voice of self. And, I, and I'll tell you why I think this one's important right at the, at the get-go. I think the voice of self is, is an important word to, or voice to acknowledge because I think it's, it's our own voice saying to ourselves, make the tomb secure. In other words, it's ridiculous. It's futile to think that we can keep Jesus in the tomb. But it's possible for us to make the tomb secure that keeps us apart from him. We can put the stone in front of the door to our own hearts in a way we can secure it. That Jesus is alive and well and moving amongst us, way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, but we don't let him in our lives. And I believe we can, we can make the tomb secure in our own self-doubt or in our own denial or even in our own security or even in our, des- our desire just to keep Jesus at a distance because, frankly, he's a, he doesn't make a very good house guest. My life is better because Jesus is Lord of my life, but my life is not easier my life would be easier if I lived as though the only thing that mattered is the here and the now. I'd just go get everything I could get and do everything I wanted to do, how I want to do it, when I want to do it, and to whoever I want to do it to because this life is all I have. But if Jesus is alive and resurrection is real, then this life is not all there is, and this, my life is not my own. The Bible says my life has been bought at a great price, and my body doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the Lord. And so if my self-view is I don't want to believe this is true. I'm going to seal myself apart from Jesus so I can live my life however I want to. Then we take upon ourselves the voice of Pilate. It's a futile word. He's alive. Jesus' lordship and his reality and his life is not dependent upon your acknowledgement of it. Jesus doesn't become more alive when you say, Jesus, you're alive. And he doesn't become dead if you say, I'm making the tomb of my life secure against you. And so, um, but let me just unpack the spirit of the age. I'm going to date myself now. How many of you remember a production called Jesus Christ Superstar? Yeah, you're old with me. I remember it. I remember it well uh, because uh, I was in youth group at the time. And for some reason, one of the things our youth group did is we went to see this, uh, a production of this. Um, if you know anything about this show, then you know that Jesus is presented in the Jesus Christ superstar as merely human. Uh, the, 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 what makes up the, the production is that all of the miracles of Jesus, all the teachings or, or evidences that Jesus is supernatural or skipped over, and, and the, the idea that Jesus is God with us isn't discussed. Both Mary Magdalene and Judas Iscariot sing songs like, I don't know how to love him, he's just a man. And the whole, the whole thing, the whole production stops in John 19, two chapters short of resurrection. It stops with his burial, and there's no word of resurrection that's in it. The music stops just at the point where the, 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 the joy begins to enter in. And really, I say it's no wonder the production, you know, that was so popular, because it fits with our take, with, with the take on life that many have, that there is no real supernatural, miraculous aspect to the world that exists. The only thing that we have is what we can see, what we can sense, what we can measure, what we can touch, taste, and feel. That if, if, if there is a God, such a being, such a divine being, doesn't do miracles, he is involved with our daily lives, he's like a watchmaker who set it into motion, took his hands off, and it's just spinning out on its own. Or, you know, he's only really useful to us as the object of discussion or some form of therapy, a crutch that we hold to help us when we need to express our feelings, or times when we feel bad in our lives, we can kind of pray prayers that will help us to feel better when we lose something we love or someone we love. There's no transcendence, 
nothing that's bigger and beyond ourselves. There's only eminence, only what we can see in the here and the now. There's no divine ruler by whom, you know, I'm made to answer and be held accountable to my life. And it's, it's really, again, I'll date myself with another one. There's the, it's really the spirit of the age. You could find it in the song that John Lennon sang called Imagine. I think, is the song just called Imagine? Imagine there's no heaven. And the spirit of the age would, would basically be personified in a song like that that, came, that basically came to prominence around that time that essentially said that secular humanism would eventually take over the world. That God is dead, Christianity was, was falling by the wayside, and that secular humanism would be the way of the world. And I can tell you that as a pastor in America, it oftentimes feel like, feels like that was real prophecy. But I'll tell you this, it's not real when you look at global Christianity. Uh, Lenin's dream was a fantasy. Religion isn't dying. In fact, uh, if you look at the rise of religion worldwide, what's on the decline worldwide is, is agnosticism, atheism, uh, the belief that there is no divine being or system of religion. What, what is growing is, is world religion is growing at a, at a pretty incredible rate. By 2060, I believe, uh, Christianity is still expected to be, just this is based upon missiologists and sociologists, Christianity is expected to still be the largest world religion, but not by much. It's supposed to grow from 30 to 32%, and Islam is supposed to grow to like 305 or 31%. And so the question for the next generation is not imagine there's no heaven, imagine there's no religion, imagine there's none of this. The question isn't whether religion will die out, the question is Christianity or Islam. That's really the question for the next generation. Lenin dreamed of a, uh, of a, of a religion-free world where there would be nothing to kill or die for. Uh, and he was staring into this dark night of segregation. And I, I, I found this week a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. that was such a contrasting message. It was actually spoken before Lenin had written this. I mean, I, I think... To me, the worldview means everything. When you come to a point where you believe that, you know, imagine there's no heaven, there's no religion, there's nothing. It's just secular. What you see here and now is all there is. Compare that to the life of a man who, who literally lays his life down for the truth and the hope of the gospel and says this. There are some things so dear, some things so precious, some things so eternally true that they are worth dying for. And I submit to you that if a man has not discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. The spirit of the age says the world is all there is. That's, you, you, know, you can explain everything about life with the material world, with human experience. Uh, uh, you know, and and that we try to, you know, the spirit of the age tries to pressure us into believing that if, we, if, 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 it's, if it's to be, it's up to me. If we're going to have it, we have to have it now. Um, and so the spirit of the age says... Make the tomb as secure as you know how and post a guard of 15 men and put, make a, you know, put a seal on the, on the tomb forbidding that the tomb be open. And, and, but no human plot, no human law, no human power can stop this sovereign move of God because Jesus rose from the dead. The grave, as secure as he could be made, couldn't hold him. And there ain't no grave going to hold him down. <laughs> In other words, God 
like intrudes on the plans of, of humanity, the spirit of the age. It says, make the tomb as secure as you. It says, I, I'm not playing by those rules. Jesus, who was, was dead, is alive. He's the first fruits of our resurrection. Witnesses saw it. The good news is he's alive today. God can't be stopped. The secular story about the world that says everything is explained by what you can see, touch, taste, feel, what you can have in the here and now, that God is just an opinion or a sentiment and life is what you make of it. That's incomplete. It's graceless. There's no grace. It's contestable. It turns out that, that to try to live without God is troubling. Look, just look at the Jewish leaders of the day who are meeting with the governor of Rome, actually violating their own religious law that they falsely accused Jesus of violating. The point is, to make a choice to live without God takes work. It's lonely. It's graceless. And there's Pilate offering those haunting words to go and make the tomb as secure as you can. But how can you do that? I mean, I've, I've been to tons of funerals. I've presided, officiated over probably 150. And nobody ever came to me and said, let's go check into the graveside and make sure that grave is still in there. So really, it's a symbolic thing for us today to focus all of our energy on, on really this weight of this decision. Is, is, is he still there or is he not? So he says to these, these women, or he doesn't, the angel says to these women, look, come and see. Jesus is with us. He's, he's alive. And go and tell that Jesus is reigning at the right hand of God. And so um, how do we come and see? The scriptures here aren't talking about taking a trip to the Holy Land as good as that may be. In fact, the matter is when you go to the Holy Land, you're not quite sure where to go and find an empty tomb. Uh, and so you can go see all the tour spots but that's not really what, what, how come and see rings out to us today. Um, one biblical commentator said that the, the whole point of the resurrection or the Easter story is that God the creator is the redeemer that has dealt with everything that messed up this wonderful world, including death, and set into motion his plan to sort it all out, to put it all right, to remake it so that it's filled with glory and beauty. And so he's saying basically the ways to come and see are to open up your heart, open up the tomb you know, in front of your own heart and do this exercise of glory and wonder and just to ask the question, you know, Lord, what if you came and moved in and you just, you just completely remade the place? What if, let me just make it really practical for you. What if this beginning of this year, you made a resolution to simply act as if God is with you, even if you don't feel like it? What if you made a resolution to simply say, I'm going to endeavor to wake up tomorrow morning, or I'm going to leave here today before I even go to lunch, and I'm going to act as though God is really with me. Can I tell you, there was a point in my early adulthood where I had a bad problem with language. I wasn't a preacher at the time. And, uh, and an old man who was a mentor in my life told, gave me that advice. He, I worked on construction sites. It was kind of a difficult you know, I mean, it, you know, my excuse was, hey, it's just the way, how many of you work around construction sites? You know what I'm talking about? And that was my excuse. Look, I believe Jesus is real. I'll follow him, but, you know, I can't really do it. I can't be a relevant worker on the job site if I'm going to, you know, talk like a preacher. And this mentor of mine said, I agree with you totally. He said, just do this. He said, just act as though Jesus is with you. Just give that a try. And I tried that one day and found it impossible. If in my, what I did is I actually got into the car and, and welcomed Jesus into the car and acted like he was riding with me. I talked with him on the way. I got to the job site. I said, okay, Jesus, we're going to go now, and we're going to check out this job site. And I really, in my heart, brought him with me. And then as we began to talk, I just could not bring myself to talk the same way. 
And so I know it sounds pedantic. It sounds trite. It sounds, it sounds like a juvenile thing. But I'm telling you, take me at my word and give this a try. Act as if Jesus is with you, even if you don't feel it, and see what difference it makes. The women at the tomb, they didn't have any thought of resurrection. They came to the tomb, and there was Jesus with them. It was the farthest thing from their minds. We, we, we come and see when we come to Jesus by acts of confession and repentance and faith by saying, Lord, even if I don't feel it, as Brian was saying earlier, his presence isn't always felt. Even if I don't feel it, I'm going to act and live as though you're with me. And if you're struggling, if you struggle with doubt about that sort of thing, I will tell you this. This is one of the things the church gets wrong is that we, we, we try to make it sound like there's no room for doubt but you need to know this. We all believe while doubting. Not instead of doubting. We don't put aside all of our doubts and then just, you know, go footlong into it. We, we all have things that we're struggling with. I, used to, I tell people I, knew, I understood a lot more about God when I was like 25. The older I get, the more I go, well, you know, maybe he's more than that or bigger than that or less than that or different than that or whatever. And so ask your questions. And if someone isn't able to ask, answer your questions, ask someone else. Ask someone who, who is mature, who walks in authority. But don't ask cynically, like you have no hope, or at least admit your cynicism. And, and, and ask in a way that challenges, not just the person you're asking, but challenges yourself. Like, what if, what if Jesus is real? What, I mean, are you open to being changed? Not fitting God into the assumptions that you have, because your assumptions, let me have, let me just, this is news for some of you. Let me just tell you, your assumptions are always too small. The assumptions you have about God and his activity in the world today are always too small. So you might look at some charismatic preacher who's touching people when they're falling out, and your assumption is that guy's a fake. That's your assumption, right? Or you might assume, you know, some word you hear about somebody, you know, doing something far off like a regenerative miracle. Right? And they, preached, they prayed over this guy who had no eye in his eye socket, and his eye was not just, you know, a new eye was generated, and he could see out of that new eye, you go... Man, that kind of stuff is too far-fetched to be real. Your assumptions are way too small. If you can believe in resurrection, (laughs) that God can raise someone from the dead to be fully alive and forever alive, why would you assume that he can't do anything else that he wants to do? All right, I'm going to skip to the end because I I, I didn't promise, but I suggested that this would be short. I'm just going to tell you without really getting into these these are, these are seven things I wrote down, and not, seven things makes you nervous, right? Because you go, that's like 10 minutes a piece at 70 minutes. No, it's not like that. I'm just going to read to you. Brian, you can actually even start to come on up here. I'm just going to tell you seven things that I think are authenticated by an empty tomb. Seven, th- seven truths that if this is real ought to make a difference in, in your life. And if you're a note taker, you should take note of these because you should search these out. They're not difficult. They're not No one of them is like, man, I've never heard that before. You have heard every one of these. What I'm saying to you, though, is if the word of Pilate is futile and my preaching is not, then these seven facts, these seven truths are authenticated by the empty tomb in a way that they should make a difference in your life here and now and as long as you live. You ready? I I do good with response. You ready? All right. Ready? Number one. It really is more blessed to give than receive. It's just as simple as that. If the, if the, if the tomb is, is empty, then Jesus' life, death, and resurrection authenticate the fact that it really is more blessed to give than to receive. He says his whole life is personified by this, that the, that the, the, the Son of Man didn't come to, to be served but to serve. 
And it really is more blessed to give than to receive. This touches every area of your life. Your giving, your financial giving, your service, you know, your, your life to the Lord, your willingness to do whatever it takes, even when it hurts, it really is more blessed to give than to receive. Enough said there. Secondly, the love of money disappoints. Now, I didn't say money disappoints. The love of money disappoints. The fact is, is that it's easier to live with a little bit of money than with no money. The Bible actually makes this point over and over again about us caring for the poor because those who have nothing, it says, you know, we should care for these people because to have no money is to be put out. It's like death. It's to be put outside the camp. But I read a report. It's called, believe it or not, the World Happiness Report. It was done by an economist named Jeffrey Sachs. He did it in 2018. And he studied per capita income in the United States and determined the fact that it had doubled. So per capita income, that's like what your household is bringing home and your ha- has doubled since 1972. So inside of my lifetime, per capita income has doubled. So when I was 10 years old or so, what my parents were earning, that amount is at least doubled. Okay? But happiness, or what they call in this scientifically subjective well-being, don't know what that means, has remained roughly unchanged or has declined by measurement. So in other words, the biblical warnings about the love of money turn out to be more true than we realize. Invest your life in money over relationships and the returns will not satisfy you. Third, work works for you when it's a calling. Your work that you do actually works when it's a calling. And if it's not a calling, it doesn't. And I'm just going to give you a simple parable to illustrate this. Three bricklayers are asked, what are you doing? The first one says, I'm laying bricks. The second one says, I'm building a church. The third one says, I'm building the house of God. The first bricklayer has a job. The second one has a career. The third has a calling. When you have a calling in your life, it does not matter what you do. You will find the satisfaction and glory of God in it. You can be a guy who, I mean, I read a story about a guy who cleaned bedpans at a, at a nursing home and he felt the call of God on his life so powerfully that his work was filled with the glory of God. Your work can be filled with the glory of God whether you're the surgeon or the bedpan cleaner if you feel God's pleasure in what you're in calling and what you do. Fourth, we really can be happy in all circumstances. This is one of the most ridiculous outlandish statements that's ever made in scriptures that Paul himself makes. Jesus says it, Paul says it, that you know the secret to, to really living a full life is that to be content in anything. Now, it would be ridiculous and completely outlandish to expect that of somebody if it wasn't somebody who had experienced both the highs and lows of life. And Paul himself writes this in the midst of of imprisonment. We really can be happy in all circumstances. I want to say more there, but I won't because I'm going to keep my promise. Five, gratitude is good for us. It's not just psychology. The, the, the idea of gratitude and being grateful for what we have in all things is buried at the heart of, of Christianity. It is, it is the epitome of, 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 of the empty tomb. We don't believe that God just created us and every good thing that we have, but also that he offers salvation to us as a free gift, that he won it for us by his death and resurrection. And for Christians, therefore, it's not just some sort of positivity technique. It's, a, it's this deep disposition towards life. This is the way we live life. We live, lo- we live our lives saying, you know, I'm thankful for all things. We believe in a God who can take even that which was intended for evil and use it for good for the saving of many lives. Exhibit A in that is not the life of Joseph in Genesis 50. Exhibit A in that is the resurrection of Jesus. Six, self-control and perseverance help us thrive. Self-control and perseverance help us thrive. Now, here's why this matters. 
I tell people all the time who don't follow Jesus, if you would just live by the tenets of the New Testament, your life will be better. Not easier, but better. Because self-control and perseverance actually help us thrive. There's a psychologist by the name of Angela Duckworth, and she suggested the quality of what we call grit, which this is how she defines it. Passion and perseverance for very long-term goals. Delayed gratification, the idea of sticking with something to an end. She says it can be more predictive of a person's success than social intelligence, good looks, health, and IQ combined. Just sticking with something, persevering and under self-control is a greater secret to thriving than all of the giftedness that you carry within you. Seventh, forgiveness is foundational. If you live in unforgiveness toward yourself, toward someone else, or toward the Lord, you are an unhappy person. I can guarantee it. Unforgiveness will poison your your joy receptors. You will have no joy when you live in unforgiveness. When you have no unforgiveness and you live in offense towards somebody else, you will not feel the forgiveness of the Father. You won't feel that you're beloved. You will feel like, you know, he died on a cross for me, but something more needs to happen. Because you live in unforgiveness toward others, you will feel unforgiven. You will live unforgiven. Forgiveness is foundational. All of that together suggests we need something more than ourselves. And so I'm just going to ask you to stand. And I, what I want to do is I want to consecrate, really I'll say the year, but I mean the rest of your life. And I'm going to ask you if you're willing just to come forward. You can kneel at an altar. You can stand. But I'm going to ask you to come forward as a, as a way to, 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 to represent coming and seeing and going and telling. One of my favorite things to do is to go visit a place in Israel that I, I don't know whether it is the place, but it feels like the place to me. And there's an empty tomb there. It used to have on the back of the door a sign that said, he's not here, he's risen. And my invitation for you to come and see is, is, is to maybe come and just ask the Lord to show you the reality of the empty tomb. And then the go and tell part is, is that you would leave this place as one who's willing to live your life according to that truth. The most futile word ever spoken, go make that grave secure. And maybe today you need to open up the, 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 the door to the tomb, the grave that you've been living in and invite Jesus to come in and speak life. And so I'm just going to invite you to come now. If you want to come, I'm just going to pray a prayer of consecration over this year. You come if you feel led. Come now. Just come now. Would you go ahead and sing?